recording will be maybe a little <clears throat> shorter than normal. Tyrell likes to tell me that I preach, you know, within this window of like 35 to 42 minutes away, you know, and every week somehow I find a way to manage that. Um, <clears throat> but I would say this, if you've never had to um, prepare teaching for a group, if you have, you know, it's kind of like dumping out a puzzle at the beginning of the week. Um, you dump out all the pieces, and then as you, as you work and as you read and as you study throughout the week, you're trying to figure out how do they fit together? How do I make one picture out of the things that are in front of me? Some weeks, it's like dumping out a thousand-piece puzzle of a cloudless blue sky, and it just is how in the world do these things fit together? How am I supposed to possibly understand this? And then some weeks, it's like a 20-piece puzzle for ages three and up. Um, it just, the, the scripture is simple, right? It's there. There's not a whole lot of explanation that needs to happen. Um, this week is a lot more along those lines. And so I think um, the Lord is just, the Lord is kind to us, in, even in the small things. Um, because this whole week, I took off work, and I've been working on our house, and painting, and doing floors, and trim, and all this stuff. And I was literally putting together a puzzle all week, um, trying to fit the floors together and make them fit and make them go around corners and all this stuff. And so when I set aside my time to study, um, the Lord knew my brain was hurting already, and so he gave me something easy. And I think that what we have in front of us this morning is something fairly easy to understand. Um, but it does bring up a topic that is, is hard for us to comprehend or maybe not understand, but just it's hard for us to, to deal with sometimes. Um, so before we get started with this, let's look back to and just remember what has happened, right? So I say this every week, but the book of Romans is one long argument, right? We can't just take these verses and say, what do these verses mean? We have to understand what they mean within the context of what Paul is saying and what he's been explaining. And so if we think about chapter 10, we know that what Paul has done, um, we trace it back to the beginning of the chapter, he is first off describing how deeply he wants his brethren to be saved. He knows that not all of the Jews are saved, but it is his deepest desire that that would be true. Um, and so their, their unbelief is what has caused them to be unrighteous. It's not that they haven't followed the law perfectly like they were seeking their righteousness in the law, and they have not been able to find it. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, the, the righteousness that we have comes through Jesus. And then last week we saw that that righteousness in Jesus is right in front of us. It is accessible, right? That's why he says you don't have to go into the heavens and you don't have to go down to the abyss to find it. It's right there. It's right here. It's in your Bible. It's right in front of you. Jesus is accessible to everybody. We don't have to go scouring the earth to find him and to find the gospel. It's simple and it's easy and it's there and it's available, right? And Paul even says, look, the way in which you accept it is simple and easy and available. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved, right? I mean, we, he brings it down to one of the simplest statements in all of scripture. It's a part, I think it's a part of the Roman road. I actually don't remember the Roman road, but if it's not, it should be, right? Romans 10, 9, it's just, it's a simple simple, bare bones, like boiled down expression. This is how you become saved. This is how you obtain faith. Believe it in your heart, confess with your mouth, you will be saved, right? It's very simple. He is giving us a simple message. And then he says the gospel is for everyone who believes, right? The Lord is the Lord of all. So this gospel, which is accessible to all, which is easy to accept, God is the God of everyone, 
This is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's not just for Americans or just for this country or this group or this time. It's for every human being throughout all of human history. This is the message of God that we have sinned against him from the very first sin, right? When Adam and Eve sinned against God, the message is, you have disobeyed me, but I will make a way for us to be reconciled. And he does. And he does it through Jesus. And so, when we come then to verse 16, he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. So once again, there is nothing complicated about that statement. We read it, it's easy to understand, it's easy to see what Paul is trying to say, right? They have not, now I think at this point he is talking specifically about the, his Jewish brethren, right? Um, but this can be applied across the board, it's not just about the Jews, the world in general, they, they have not all believed the gospel. Now, it's, some may say, and I think it's probably true, that many people came to Paul and said, Guess what? The majority of the Jews, not just that some don't believe it, but the majority of Israel is not believing this thing that you say is so accessible, it's so easy to understand, it's right here, it's easy to accept, and yet the majority of Israel doesn't believe it. They don't accept it. Maybe you're the one who is wrong and they're the one who is right. If the majority of people look at the idea and say, we deny it, we reject it, maybe they're the ones who are right and you are the one who is wrong. I think this is highly possible because of what Paul says in the second half of verse 16, right? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So this is actually in connection, if you go back to verse 15, where he also quotes from Isaiah. So verse 15, the quote, is from Isaiah 52. Right? So what he is doing is he is expressing the gospel, he's explaining it, and then at the end of Isaiah 52, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul quotes it. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 1, which says, Lord, who has believed what you have heard from us? Paul is going back to the argument that Isaiah is making. And what is Isaiah 53? Anybody? The suffering servant passage. The most explicit passage in the Old Testament that describes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much so that, is, that, that Orthodox Jews have no idea what to do with Isaiah 53. I had a pastor who, I was, when I was in seminary, he went to Israel, he was, studying, he was studying Hebrew for his doctorate, and so he went over there for a sabbatical, and he was going to Orthodox Jewish classes, learning Hebrew, and it just so happens he shows up for a week of this class, right? And the first day he shows up, they're looking at Isaiah 52, and the next day he's like, oh man, I really want to know what they're going to do with Isaiah 53. What do they do? They skipped it completely. Isaiah 54, right? Tuesday... Monday is 52, Tuesday is 54. They have no idea what to do with this passage. It is so explicitly about Jesus that most people who deny Jesus can't explain to you what Isaiah is possibly talking about. 
So Paul quotes Isaiah 53.1. Now it's interesting. We had this discussion last week in our Sunday school class. That this happens a lot. That somebody will quote a verse, especially the beginning of a chapter of a verse, because they didn't have chapters, right? So they, weren't, they couldn't say, go back and read Isaiah 53. So they, would, they would quote the first line. And then they knew that this was a section, right? And so then they would go and they would read that section. And it was, Paul is pointing people to go not just to read the first verse of Isaiah 53, but the entire chapter. Who has believed what we have told them? And then he goes on to explain this is exactly what is going to happen in the life of our Messiah, in the life of our Savior. It's funny, we had a discussion about this. But it's really funny because we do the same thing, right? If somebody tells you, if they make the statement like, I have a dream. Do you really think they're about to tell you a dream that they have? Or do you think that they're making reference to Martin Luther King? Or if somebody says to you, four score and seven years ago. Like, we don't talk like that anymore, right? We, we do this. We'll, we'll quote something, or the first line of something, to bring to mind the entirety of the document, right? The entirety of the speech. And when we hear those statements, not only do we think, oh, I have a dream, I think of Martin Luther King, but I think of him, who he was, what he stood for, what the entire thing was, and what the, what the world was surrounding that time. It brings out in us more than just, oh yeah, he's quoting from Isaiah. But it's that all of the stuff that goes with it. And so it's more than just him quoting the first verse, but he wants them to look and to realize and to remember this is the prophecy that was made about Jesus. You see, here's the thing. If the argument has come to Paul, look, this is so easy. It's in front of us. It's easy to believe. Why is it that the Jews have, are not believing it? Why is it that they are rejecting it en masse? And Paul says, that's nothing new. You remember Isaiah? He gives them a prophecy of who Jesus is. Do they, they don't believe it then, and they weren't believing it during Paul's day either. When Isaiah writes it, he starts the prophecy by asking the question, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He knows they don't want to believe this. He knows their understanding of a Messiah is different than what is described in chapter 53. That he, will, that he will be crushed for our iniquities. That he will be humiliated, killed, buried. Right? Those are not the things they think of when they think of a Messiah. And so Paul quotes this. Because this is not the first time that God has revealed himself to the world, to Israel, to his chosen nation. And they rejected it. Completely. Now, there's something really important to notice. Um, when we read this earlier, you probably noticed this, and, you probably, and maybe you've noticed it really since, since the beginning of chapter 9, is that Paul is quoting the Scriptures a lot. Like, more than normal. Far more than he did in the first eight chapters. Far more than he does in most every other book of, that he has ever written, right? Why? Because at the beginning of chapter 9, he makes this bold statement that not all of Israel belonged to Israel. He's not just giving us his opinion. 
He's not just saying, well, this is what I think, or, you know, I was in a dark room and God revealed this to me. He is saying, look, I'm going to tell you something that you don't like, and I'm going to prove it to you over and over and over again from your scriptures. The thing that, as Jesus says, I think it's in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Right? That's what he says when he is looking to the Pharisees. So Paul is quoting to them the thing that they look for, that they are trying to find eternal life in the scriptures. And he says, look, this is where I'm finding this. Paul, I'm not making this up. This idea that is not all of Israel is a part of Israel, that the gospel is so simple and that you're going to reject it and that Israel is rejecting it. This has been around for a long time that God has revealed himself over and over and over again and you refuse to believe it. Now, it's important to understand that not only is he quoting Scripture to them, but he is interpreting it properly. So, when he quotes Isaiah 53, the Jewish people around him are not like, whoa, I've never heard that before. The Pharisees and the scribes, they know the Scriptures just as well, or maybe some of them better than Paul does. This is not new information to them. This is not like, I never read that before. I've never understood, I've, I've never read that before. They have read it, but they don't interpret it properly. Their misinterpretation of the scriptures has led them to miss the Messiah completely. So it's not just about knowing and being able to read and to go back and, and, and to know them well, but to interpret them properly. I mean, think about it. How many cults exist today in our society because of this exact thing? Our neighbors know the Bible. In fact, if you go up against a Mormon, they might know the Bible better than you do. But the problem is, they don't understand it. They've read it. They've memorized a lot of it. But then they've added parts, that, right? They've added their own thing. And the parts that they do know, they have misinterpreted it. My dad grew up in Jehovah's Witness Church. I mean, I, I have a lot of experience with Jehovah's Witness and cousins and aunts and uncles and lots and lots of people in my life who have given me the lighthouse, who have given, you know, like preached to me the idea um, of Jehovah's Witness, that, that their whole worldview. And it's the exact same thing. How many of you recently have had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and they quote to you, what? The Bible. Every time in the last 10 years that I've had a Jehovah's Witness come knock on my door and want to talk to me, the first thing they do is quote a scripture and I think, well, yeah, I know that scripture. You don't understand it, obviously, because you don't think Jesus is God. They know the Bible, but they don't interpret it properly. The Jews, they knew the scriptures. They knew exactly what Paul would be talking about when he quotes Isaiah 53, but they don't understand it. It's not enough to just read it. We have to dig deep, right? That puzzle that gets dumped out. We can't just be like, ah, I got like 10 pieces of the thousand. That's probably good enough. We have to keep working and working and digging deep and asking questions and doing everything we can to understand what we have in front of us. Now, we as the Protestant Christian church 
are not immune to this. We say, oh, yeah, of course. All these other places, they're, they're, they're rejecting and they're misinterpreting. How many Protestant Christian denominations today are being plagued, are being infiltrated by this sexual revolution? Where they will say, they will read in the Bible where God says that homosexuality is a sin, and they say, yeah, but not really, though, right? It's okay. Yeah, I, I see that it's written, but isn't that just something that was written for 2,000 years ago? No, this Bible, this book that we have is alive and breathing, right? It is, it is just as effective for you and I today, right now, as it was 2,000 years ago when it was written. Our churches are being plagued with misinterpretation. They read the Bible, they, they, they have read it, they're familiar with it, and there is a misinterpretation. That is the reason why there are many, many churches who are floundering, who are going off the deep end, who are saying and believing things that are antithetical to the Bible. So we're not immune. We have to be careful. When we look at Scripture, we can't just say... I, I don't know about you, I love John Steinbeck. I read his books like over and over and over again. I bet I've read East of Eden like 15 times. It's one of my favorite books. I just read it. I love the story. And one of the things that just sticks out to me in this book, um, there, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a married couple. This is like the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, so 1900, right? They're coming out of the 19th century into the 20th century. And so they're just farmers in California. And there's a married couple. And the husband is always asking questions. And the wife, and they're, and they're having a discussion. And he asks them, about the Bible and his wife said stop asking questions just read it you don't need to understand it just read it right this is this is a mentality that so many of us sort of adopt I don't know what it says but I'm just going to read my chapter for the day and I did it and so I'm going to move on with my life you're better off reading half a verse and understanding it than reading 10 chapters a day and not having a clue what you just read we have to read it and interpret it. We have to dig deep. We have to think deeply. Because once again, we are not immune to misinterpreting God's word. It can be challenging. It can be confusing. Okay, so back to chapter 10. He says they don't believe. Not all have believed. Why is this true? The message is readily available. It's easy to understand. It only requires that we believe and confess. And he even says to us, right, in verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God or by the word of Christ, depending on your, um, uh, your version, right? So it's really simple. Faith comes from hearing. And so then, of course, he asks the most logical question, well, if it comes by hearing, haven't, then maybe they haven't heard, right? Maybe it's just that they haven't heard what's going on. That's verse 18. Have they not heard? Gives us a simple, easy answer. Of course, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So if they've heard, then where is the barrier? And that's where he gets to in verse 19, right? Here's the question. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Now when he asks, have they heard? He gives us a clear answer. Yes, they have. Indeed, they have. Now when he says, do they understand? It's not quite so clear. The answer isn't readily in front of us. Have they understood? Well, this is the answer. 
I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So this comes from Deuteronomy 32, verses 19 to 22. Let's, let's look. Because I think it's important to understand where Paul is, is getting these things and, and how he's quoting them and what's going on. So Deuteronomy 32 Starting in verse 19. Actually, let's back up to 17. It's helpful. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Paul asks the question, do they understand? And this is what he quotes. You see, God is doing something. The nation of Israel traded in worshiping the God for what we see in Deuteronomy is no God, right? Little g, God. Karen, this could have solved your problem, right? You love big C and little c camp, right? There's a difference. Big C camp is a person. Little c camp is a thing. God is saying there is a big G God, which is him, the God. Now, when we look at God in, in Hebrew, it's Elohim, which really just means spirit. And so when he says you are worshiping no God, little g God, you are worshiping a little G, Elohim. You are worshiping a spirit. Now, how many times, or I don't know what you have thought about this in your life, but those who have worshipped other gods, when we read that in the Ten Commandments, how many of you think like, yeah, but there are no other gods. Like, what is he talking about? What are they worshipping? Is it just the statues? But the word God is Elohim. It is a spirit. They are actually worshipping other Elohims, other spirits. Because what happened... When Satan and his angels rebelled. They are cast to the earth. Not into hell. Not into Hades. Not to the earth. They exist. They are running around messing with you. And with everybody. And they are trying to convince you not only to worship, to not worship big G God, the Elohim. They are trying to get you to worship them. Little G God. I don't want to go too far off on this rabbit hole, but it's really interesting if you think about it. What, when, when, when Jesus says, I saw, he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like what? Lightning. Like a lightning bolt, right? And who is a false god in the society that Jesus exists in? What is Zeus represented as? 
A lightning bolt, right? I don't think that, the, that that's a coincidence. I think that Jesus is making reference to all of their false gods, and they are demons, every single one of them. You see, Israel was not worshiping something fiction or made up. They are worshiping demons. That's what Deuteronomy said. They are worshiping Demons, they refuse to worship the one true God. And God said, I'm going to make you jealous. I'm, just in the way that you worship no God, I am going to make you jealous with a no people. Which is a weird way to say it, right? We don't speak that way. But what God is saying, you, you have worshipped something that is so far inferior to me, I'm going to make you jealous with somebody that you think is inferior to you. He removes their understanding from them to make them jealous. They chose to worship the little g Elohims. So God says, I'm going to bring in other nations then. I'm going to make you jealous. Now, on the face of that, that seems petty, right? How many of you has another human being ever done something like that to you? We would call that manipulative, inappropriate, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't want that from our spouse instead of just saying, hey, can you just tell me what's wrong and let's work through this? Like, instead of the, we don't want that from the people whom we love. And so sometimes we might look at this and think, God, what are you, this is a little bit, that's a little odd. Seems a little petty. But the difference is God deserves every ounce of our worship. Every breath that you take, every thought that you think, every word you say, every action you do should be in worship to God. And when you don't, he deserves to be jealous, right? He deserves to get angry at us because we are not worshiping the one and true God. So for him to make Israel jealous is not petty in the way that we would think about it in our human relationships. So he quotes Deuteronomy. He is making a point that God has taken away their understanding. They cannot understand anymore. The reason that they don't understand is because God has taken that from them. And then he quotes it from Isaiah too. Right? This is even a little more explicit. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. This is everyone else other than Israel. God is showing himself to people who were not looking for him in the first place. We talked about this last week, right? The famous story of Jonah. Do you think Nineveh was like, we know that we're bad. We just don't understand exactly how to fix it. They had no inkling of their sin. They had no understanding that they were in the wrong. They thought, this is what we do. This is our culture. This is how we live. Everything we do, the strong, whoever has the strongest arm with the sharpest sword is the winner. That's how they live their life. That was their culture. And Jonah comes walking through the city. And they repent immediately. They were not looking for God. Nebuchadnezzar was not looking for God when Daniel and his friends showed up, right? You read that book. I, I, I don't know. I'll, be, I'll tell you this. When I get to heaven, if I see Nebuchadnezzar there, I won't be surprised. Like, there is a lot of things that he says, and there's a lot of evidences of repentance that happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life because he is introduced to God through the Hebrews, right? So, all to say, there are lots of people who are not looking for, for God, and God shows himself to them. 
Now, it's interesting to note, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees all the time, he says, you rely on what? The law and the prophets. It's a phrase Jesus uses quite often. Who does Paul quote from here? The law and the prophets, right? He is once again trying to prove to his Jewish brethren from their own scriptures that they rely on more than anything. This has been true. This is not a new message. This has always been true. Now, I know this idea, right? It's not maybe our favorite thing to think about, that God would remove understanding. It seems unfair. It seems like something that we don't like to hear. Uh, before we get to that, let's, let's also notice something. Um, so this judgment, this, what, what God brings down on his people, um, this is not the first time. It's not as if one time they choose not to worship him, and so God is like, well, that's it. God is patient, right? It, this is after years and years and years of them worshiping little g-gods, right? The false Elohim that God finally says, I've had enough. So God is patient, and it is also true that God's patience is limited. Eventually, God will stop, right? Eventually, he is going to let us to our own devices. He is going to let, Israel, you want to worship these, these false gods, these demons, for year after year after year, even though I call you to repentance? All right, here it is. Have at it. See, see where it gets you, right? His patience has a limit. And he lets them do what they want. And so he removes their ability to understand. Now, once again, I know that language is not ideal, right? It's not something that we like to hear, that God would do this, because once again, it seems unfair. But let's look at Matthew chapter 13. This will probably be a fairly familiar passage. Matthew 13, starting in verse 10. So the disciples were speaking to Jesus. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Now this is not to say that God holds his understanding back from people forever. But it is clear that he does, right? It is clear that in this moment that he is preaching these parables, people don't understand. The, the, or the, the disciples are like, why is it? Why are you doing this? Why are you speaking in this way? And he says, you've been given a gift. You have been given the gift of understanding, and they haven't. So for God to withdraw his understanding from people, it's, not, it's his gift to give, right? It's not unfair for him to give it or to take it away whenever he sees fit. 
The reason they don't understand is not because it's hard, right? We have to remember all the stuff that we've already looked at in chapter 10. It is simple. It is easy. Jesus is accessible. He is right in front of us. You don't have to scour the earth. Here he is. All you have to do is believe and repent and you will be saved. And yet they didn't do it because God is withholding their understanding from him, from them. But then 21, this is the culmination of all of it, right? This is what happens. This is what God says. But of Israel, he says, all the day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, God doesn't put jealousy in their hearts and then just leave them like that. Watching them flounder, watching them suffer. He does it and then he says, come back to me. His arms are open wide, right? All the day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He plants the jealousy in them and then says, come back to me. There's a reason I made you jealous because I want you back in my presence. And so he holds out his hands and he's inviting them to come back, come back. He doesn't put them in this state to punish them and make them feel bad forever. It's so that they will repent. That is what it's always been about. He wants Israel to come back into His presence. And so He plants this within them. And He says, my arms are open wide. Just like the father and the prodigal son, right? He watches his son go off and squander everything. And he's hoping that he'll come back. And the day that he does, he embraces him. This is a story of repentance. This is what God is doing to the nation of Israel, right? He plants in them this jealousy so that he can welcome them back. He can love them. And this is what is true for every single human being. God's arms are open wide for everybody who repents and believes. This simple message of salvation that we saw in chapter 10, this is all that is required. That you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that you repent, right? That you confess with your mouth of your sins. You will be saved. God's arms are open wide. He's waiting for you to do these things. This is what He desires from all of His creation. That we would be saved. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't, know, I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what you think about God. But if you think anything else other than that, that God's arms are open wide, ready to embrace you when you repent and believe, you don't understand who he is. This is it. This is the culminating description of who God is all day long. I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He wants you to come into His presence. He is calling on you to repent and believe. And He will save you. He will embrace you in an everlasting embrace that lasts for all of eternity. Beyond this life. Beyond heaven into the new creation. This is the promise of God. If you, if you don't remember anything else, Romans 10.21, memorize it. Take it home. Every time. You struggle, remember that this is the picture of God that we have. That His arms are reaching out to embrace us. He wants us to return to Him. He wants us to repent. 
This is the calling for each of us this morning. Whether it be that you are a Christian and you, there are things in your life that you need to get under control. There are sins. There is the sanctification, right, that Matt talked about earlier. It's a really simple statement. The will of God for you is that you would be sanctified. That, you would, that, that means to get rid of sins that are in your life, to get rid of disobedience, and to go back and to become closer with the Lord. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and that you need that embrace for the first time. This is God's call upon you this morning. His hands are wide open for the disobedient and the contrary. Go to him. Experience his love and his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful for the the patience that you have, Lord, it's, it's unbelievable. And even when your patience ran dry with your nation and you, you plant jealousy in them, your arms are still open wide, inviting them back, wanting them to come and be reunited with you. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who is experiencing this, experiences a disconnect with you because of their sin, Lord, I pray that you would give them that understanding, that they would know what it means to be a Christian. They would know what it means to be saved. They would see and understand that you are a God with arms open wide, hoping that they will come and be saved, that they will repent, that they will believe. Father, this is your call for us this morning to remember this. It's The call for me, I know, to remember that even in the midst of my sin, you are there, you are patient, you are loving and kind. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.